0: So, so this morning we return to the cultivation or unveiling of loving-kindness, immeasurable loving-kindness. As the thought comes up, the very notion of loving-kindness, I think it is very helpful to consider that it may be indeed a derivative of something more fundamental, more basic. And His Holiness Dalai Lama pointed this out some years ago, uh, and that is when he, when asked about what he felt was the fundamental drive, the fundamental, just that, drive, motivation, impulse in the human spirit. He said in Tibetan, zewa, zewa, which means my translation is caring. You remember? Some of you have heard me speak of this before, of caring. It's one of those things that we can't stop doing. We can shift the manner in which we care in tremendous, in a tremendously wide array, or kind of different ways. We can also modify how much we care about, but we can't turn it off, any more than we can turn off consciousness and just make it stop. We can't turn off caring. So it seems like these two must be inextricably intertwined, because they have this fundamental raw quality. Many processes can start and stop, start and stop, yeah? Um, but consciousness can't totally stop, and the impulse of caring can't totally stop. So in this regard, there'll be a theme that we'll run through today, uh, in the morning and afternoon, and really weaving them together. The morning more in this mode of the cognitive the aspiration, the intention, but also the sense of feeling, the affective. This afternoon we'll turn more to the cognitive and the attentional. So then we'll have a complete set, right? And see how these. To, eat, to we have to speak about separately because you can't say everything at once. That would be really m- most helpful. I think if I could say everything at once, it would probably be. Are you ready? Peh! That pretty well wraps it up, you know. Or thusness, suchness, ta ta ta. That's my Dharma talk. Have a nice day. (laughs) You know, that really would be quite sufficient if, you know, we could all understand the implications of that. But until we get to that point, then we have to be futzing around with these words that break everything apart and then we say, oh, it's a great union when we take that which we have shattered in the first place, like a pot, and we put it back together, we say, it's the great union. (laughs) You know, something we fragmented in the first place. So, but let's so here we are. This is the way we have to talk. This is the way concepts work. So let's consider very important topics now. Immediately. We all know what it's like to be small minded. We we find it objectionable in other people. We're embarrassed when we do it ourselves. We know exactly what it means. I, I assume this translates into other European languages as well. But just to make sure it does, small minded it's really as if the space of the mind collapses down into a very small space, right? And nothing outside of that matters, okay? So in modern psychology, many of you are familiar with the term entering into or slipping into a refractory period, right? A refractory period, when your mind is maybe ruminating and ruminating about someone you don't like, who's treated you badly, and you're grinding away, focusing on that person, and compulsively meditating on this person's negative qualities and how you feel about them and how they shouldn't have behaved that way and they really shouldn't be on the planet at all and so the mind collapses down into this you know we and we can't in obsession like when we've been infatuated with someone we say I just can't get you off my mind I just can't get you off my mind and when we're really furious with someone I just can't get him off my mind either you know and one we want to unite with the other one we'd like to expel from the universe And so, but to make this very practical, okay, really practical, we have to, I think it's so important to recognize our minds are not whoever we are, whoever we are, I mean I'll leave out Buddhists, but for us sentient beings, uh, it's quite clear that our our minds are not homogeneously small-minded or large-minded, right? It's like a balloon, It, it gets bigger, it gets smaller, it warps, it smooths out, right? And so let's take some very practical examples here. When we slip into rumination or obsessive-compulsive thinking, namdo in Tibetan or vikarpa in Sanskrit, well, we all know what it's like, you know. It's most obvious when you're trying not to, Mm -hmm. right? When you're meditating, you're following your breath for two or three breaths and then suddenly you're not. You know, and the mind has slipped off. You're watching your mind and suddenly, you know, you're, you've just lost your mind. We all know what that's like. But now let's look at it very carefully. Because in that moment, in that little microcosm of samsara, when we've slipped into some thought, where the mind now has become very small, we're not even, not even aware that we're in it, right? We're focusing on the referent and we're cogitating and ruminating, remembering and so forth, and we're, it's kind of like a haze we're not even aware, we're caught in that thought. You, you thought you were meditating. In the meantime, somebody, you got abducted, right? And so in those cases, the mind has become very small. We're fixated probably on one person, situation, memory, fantasy, fear, what have you. The mind has become very small and we're entrapped inside a little bubble within the space of our own mind. And there's nobody else there. There's nobody else there. That is, all that we're engaging with is fiction that we're getting angry at, we're obsessing about, we're craving, we're hoping, we're fearing, it's all within that little bubble, right? That's small-minded. That's small-minded. So meditation, shamatha, just for starters, is an antidote to being small-minded in this way that you know, we just fall into it how many times? Hundreds, probably, each day. We just slip into and then snap to, as if we come out of a drunken stupor. Oh, oh yeah, I'm meditating. And then three, five seconds later, oh, I'm not, you know, in and out, in and out. So that's one way. So then that's why it's quite clear why Shantideva says, when your mind is caught up in that type of rumination, you are between the fangs of mental afflictions, right? Your whole immune system is down. You're ready to fall into any mental affliction. It's like you have a castle and all your guards have gone to sleep, so you can be invaded by anybody, and they will. As long as the seeds of mental afflictions are there, they will see when your guard is down, and they will come running in and take over your castle. Oh, and remember, well, that's where you live. The king on his throne, you've been dethroned. The, th- the king has been abducted. Duct tape over the mouth, shut up, guy, get in there. We're taken over now. The mafia have come in. You know. So that's one. That's small-minded. Every time we slip into one of these semi-conscious mind wanderings, this is small-minded. We're caught up in that little kind of bubble, right? Now let's move a little bit larger. Non-lucid dream. Non-lucid dream. Same thing, it's just a little bit larger. It's just a wandering thought, writ large, where you're living in a whole environment that's created by your wandering mind, and you seemingly engaging with all these people and so forth, except you're not, because there's nobody else there. And so this is small-minded. You're not aware of anybody else on the planet, on the universe, these are mere caricatures of human beings. They didn't have a mother or a father. They don't have mind streams. They don't have hopes and fears. They don't, they're not born, they don't die. They're just these little cartoons that the mind has cropped up, you know, painting them with a the palette of your daily experience. And so, and wor- moreover, of course, tragically, we're not even aware that it's a dream. Otherwise we could enjoy the movie. We're actually Datura spelled for a while hallucinating not even knowing we're hallucinating and then going through all these hopes and fears and plans and buying our life insurance and you know all this kind of stuff in the dream and that's small-minded because you're in a little world of your own you you know wake up wake up wherever you are or if the mother sees her her child crying in the sleep she says, wake up sweetie wake up wake up it's just a dream you become small-minded right then we have the waking state oh We care about that which presses in upon the mind. When we're caught in some kind of ruminating thought, the obsessive compulsive thinking, that's what presses in upon the mind. We didn't choose that. Who's sitting there in meditation says, Oh, I think I haven't had a wandering thought for a long time. Let's have one now. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) It never happens. It's always involuntary. Whoever's just resting in the substrate says, I think it's time to be actively deluded. Let's have a non-lucid dream. <laughs> yeah, let's start now. It never happens. You know, it's always involuntary. You know, and for us ordinary mortals yeah, like me and so forth, we didn't choose to be here. We're thrown here by our past karma, you know. And so there we wind up, you know. When I was born, you know, I was lying on my back, the first thing I did was piss right over the doctor's head. That was my welcome to the world. Like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I had in mind at the time. I'm just going to assume it was not voluntary. But that's what I was known for. No petals falling from the sky, no rainbows. <laughs> just, this little kid's got a great trajectory, pissed right over the doctor's head. <laughs> Maybe it was, I didn't ask to be here. How the hell did I get here? You know? Pasadena? Where is that? Where's Laza? Where's Laza? i Where's Laza? Where are my friends? <laughs> so we get caught in this, and what do we care about in this lifetime? Here we are. We think we're awake, while the gods are laughing. You know, here we are, and what do we care about? And it's very obvious what we care about. What presses in upon us? So a little baby, they they let it be very well known, very loudly when something is pressing in upon them that they don't like, and they call for help. So lots and lots of crying for many babies, right? But we care about that which presses in upon us, that which appears to us, that which captures our attention. That's what we care about. And so, I care about my body because I can experience it in a way that I can't experience Claudio's body, or Dana's body, or anybody else's. So, like, and I can see it, I can see whether it's pleasing, or unpleasing, or indifferent, That's about it, whereas this body is kind of like, whoa, crowding in. So how can I not care about my body when it crowds in and the pain is something, pain and pleasure and so forth, crowding in? We can't help it. It doesn't matter who you are. You're a psychopath, you're a saint. You can't help but care about that which presses in. The body presses in for most of us. And so we care about the body. We care about the feelings arising in the body. More intimately, more crucially, more centrally, we care about the feelings that are pressing in upon the mind itself. Even in rumination we care. We don't like unpleasant rumination. We don't like nightmares, and we don't like feeling bad. We don't like feeling sad or anxious and so forth. These feelings press in upon us, and so we care about them and want to do something about them, right? So we're immediately aware of our own feelings in the mind, own feelings in the body, and because they press in, we care. They capture our attention. And therefore it shouldn't be too hard to develop loving kindness and compassion for ourselves. So loving kindness compassion are both derivative of caring. Caring is holistic. Uh, the mo- the mother, mother sees her child come home from school and says, sweetie, how was your day? And she cares. She cares whether it was a happy day or an unhappy day, pleasant, meaningful, joyful, full of sadness and grief. But whatever it is, there's already a stance of caring. And if the child comes home with a big smile, then mudita arises. If the child comes home crying, then compassion arises. If the child comes home quite hopeful, maybe loving-kindness arises, and so forth. And and the child is just calm and and relaxed, had a reasonably good day, then equanimity arises. All of these are derivative of caring, right? And we have that for ourselves, we have that for anyone else that presses in upon us, right? So we're born with that. Mothers are born with, parents generally, but mothers especially, born with a sense of that extension of what they care about, even though they can't see the child's feelings mentally, can't feel the child's pain physically, don't have the nerve endings over the child's body, Nevertheless, that sense of uh, caring extends outwards very, very powerfully. And the fact that you can't experience it directly, kind of like, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. It couldn't be, it. nothing could be more real than a mother's caring for a child. What, what's more real than that? Atoms, mountains, galaxies? A mother's care for a child? I think it's as real as it gets, right? And so there it is, that's how far biology takes us, as the solanists is so often commented, and then starts Dharma. Biology takes us out to our friends, our loved ones, people who have treated us well, people we rely upon, people who protect us, give us security. goes out that far. And then it stops, or it kind of fades out. And then we have these three spheres, the like, the don't care, and the don't like. We care about all of them, but in different ways. The people we don't like, we want them to, you know, vanish, and so forth. And so, Dharma then is about expanding the sphere. First of all, developing it something that has goodness in it, that has integrity, that is caring, that is wholesome, it's wise, it's intelligent. It has an actual sense of what are the causes of suffering, what are the causes of happiness, and how to alleviate one and cultivate the other. So, base, start with a good base, because you already care. So, you know, get your head straight. And then for your caring for yourself, I mean, just at least get that right. As the said, if you're going to be selfish, at least be intelligently selfish, you know. So for your own well-being in this very narrow sphere of caring, at least get that one right. Because if we don't get that one right, and then we turn outwards, having gotten this one wrong, thinking, oh, if I just could have more sex, or more money, or more power, if I could just be controlling people more, and then we take that out into the world, caring for other people. I'll I'll teach you how to control other people. I'll teach you how to get wealthy. I'll teach you how to be more admired and respected by others. Then it's kinda like you got crap to start with and you have crap you're spreading. So then that's not very really loving-kindness. That's just extension of delusion. Right? So this is why we start with renunciation. Authentic motivation. Get it right in one place. At least one place right. Right? And then extend that to your loved ones. More casual friends outwards, outwards, outwards. So that's where Dharma comes in. That's where biology won't do the job. Genetic mutation doesn't do the job. Adaptation for survival and procreation doesn't do the job. It never has. It's making no progress whatsoever. That's where Dharma comes in. Dharma complements biology. Picks up where biology drops us off. Biology drops us off in the ocean of samsara. That's it you get old you get sick you get die and then you're finished that's what biology did for you yeah, you're born thank you now watch the watch the treadmill go you're going to get old you're going to get sick and die congratulations you mastered biology dharma is the only thing that shows freedom is it defines the path to freedom So that's what our morning's practice will be, to expand the field of caring. Expand it beyond beyond the little tiny microcosm of the wandering thought, out beyond the non- non-lucid dream, out beyond my body and my mind that I immediately care about because I immediately experience, and out beyond that because we're intelligent. and you know, We have imagination, and we can draw inference, and we have intuition, and we can sense things that we cannot see. We can know things that we cannot feel. So, I'm going to be tying this together with this evening, just with a couple of quotes. The whole theme of attending within and then seeing the manifestation without, these parallels between what's within and what's out, you know, like that, it's a very ancient theme. So, I I just kind of, so, when I was watching the the television of my mind this morning this is what came up the phrase just kind of leapt up and I had to check it out as above so below it's very well known in Western civilization. It's one of the like know thyself is one of those ancient maxims from Greek civilization it comes from the emerald tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, Megistus Megistus a god with three magisterial qualities, extraordinary qualities. And the quote from this ancient text, apparently divine, divine text from a god, was, that which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below, to accomplish the miracle of the one thing, of the one reality. So, but as a modern commentator said, this Principle is more often used in the sense of microcosm and and macrocosm. The microcosm is oneself, and the macrocosm is the universe, and the macrocosm is as the microcosm, and vice versa, the microcosm is as the macrocosm. Within each lies the other, and through understanding one, usually the microcosm, that which is more accessible, uh, a man or one may understand the other. So understand within, and you may understand without. So this is, this has been a keeper. This has been around for, I don't know, more than, more than 2,000 years easily, probably more like 2,500, maybe longer. When something sticks around that long, it really may have something to it, you know? It may. Well, it's not just in the Greek tradition. It's in the Buddhist tradition, and it's in the Bali Canon, in a very often quoted statement by the Buddha. It is in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and its mind that I describe the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. That's about as explicitly microcosm and macrocosm as it can get. Understand your own body, your own body-mind. Your body with its perception and its mind. Understand this one. By the power of that you'll understand the large. Remember man is the measure of all things. We have some recurrent themes coming up, and they cannot be trivial. So as I was reflecting on this, it occurred to me then, the final thing that occurred was uh, that the one book His Holiness has written, and he really did write it. It wasn't simply transcribed, edited, you know, talks that he gave, Uh, was his one book on uh, Buddhism and science, and the title was The Universe in a Single Atom the conversions of science and spirituality. The universe in a single atom. That's actually a very common theme in Mahayana Buddhism and Vajrayana Buddhism in particular. So there's some, really do seem to be some deep universal truths here. Know thyself, know thyself could have some profound cosmic ramifications. So So we're just tapping into these little nuggets of gold that survive. Know thyself as above, so below. Man is the major. These, with statements like that, that hang around for two thousand, three thousand years, you might wanna, you know, prick up your ears. And then when we see them outside of our civilization, because it's only it didn't get that from William Blake. You got it from the Buddhist tradition. So the practice we're about to do is inspired directly by another statement of his, wholen- uh, of his Holiness the Buddha. Uh, <laughs> the Buddha. And I'd like to read it now. So I'm going to just sow the seeds. I'd like to talk as little as possible as I can during the meditation. Just enough to nudge you a little bit. But here directly from the Buddha. Again the Pali Canon. Here monks, a disciple dwells pervading one direction with his heart filled with loving-kindness. Likewise, the second, the third, and the fourth directions. So above, below, and around, he dwells pervading the entire world everywhere. And equally, with his heart filled with loving kindness, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity, and free from distress. From the Dighana So that's our practice. That's what we'll do now. Okay? After the devo- will goes again seamlessly from our devotions to this practice. <laughs> Namo. Lama deshe dupe kunjo sumgi ranjin la datan dodu senje nam janju badu khyapsu chi Namo, in the Lama who is the embodiment of the Sugatas, of the nature of the three jewels, I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Senge <laughs> do Ma sang ye dup ne ni, kham la kan du, ki doa doa dam chao. Yuki nukcham sang, Perma, Gesa, Dombo, Choki, Motu, Perma, Hum. In the northwest frontier of Odhyana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city, and is surrounded by a host of Dakinis, following in your footsteps. I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Benesidi. Hum. Go to Pama If you'd like to switch positions, please do so now. As an expression of loving-kindness, a sense of gentleness, and of caring for yourself, Settle your body, speech and mind in the natural states. And dissolving into emptiness, into an objectless, open expanse. Every sense of your ordinary body and mind and your own identity, dissolve it without trace into emptiness, out of emptiness again arise with pure vision, with divine pride. Resting your awareness in this pearl of radiant light at your heart, the Buddha within, not merely a potential, but an actuality, still veiled, hidden, but present. Rest in that light, be that light. Rest your awareness, settle your awareness in its ground, And from this primordially pure perspective that has never been diminished, never stained, from this perspective of your own pristine awareness, with this primordial impulse of caring, rooted in your own Buddha nature, Let this light of caring flow forth from your heart and suffuse your entire being, your body, your mind, every aspect of your presence here with the light of loving kindness as you envision your own well-being, hedonic and eudaimonic. With each outbreath, arouse, let loose, the aspiration that is always, already there that you may be truly well and happy and to do so find the causes that yield this result. With each out arouse this aspiration of loving-kindness and imagine light flowing from your heart, permeating your entire being and dissolving away every affliction every obscuration every impediment everything that stands in the way between you and your own perfect fulfillment may I be truly well and happy you, the Buddha within, spread the light of loving-kindness to you, the sentient being, without. An I-Thou relationship within your own being, multiple dimensions of your own being. The microcosm of yourself as a sentient being, the macrocosm of the infinite expanse of your own pristine awareness. Imagine the purification taking place right now, breath by breath, the obscurations fading away like mist under the hot warm sun, the morning sun. Understanding your pristine awareness by way of your mind. Understanding your mind by way of your pristine awareness. Breath by breath, imagine realizing this perfect bliss, a perfect awakening, the realization of your heart's desire. Until you see that this so-called mind with which you so familiar has never been anything other than a display, an effulgence, a manifestation of your own pristine awareness. And you are no longer two but you are one. You are the one thing, the one reality. Fully adopt the sacred identity of being a Buddha. Be whole and be one. Then with the sense that your whole being is filled to overflowing, to super-saturation, with this light of well-being, the light of loving-kindness, direct your attention in front of you. Whether you're at home anywhere around the world, or whether you're here in this room in Aralun, attend to those who are nearest to you human and otherwise, in front of you. And embrace them in this field, embrace them in your light, with every out-breath, sending forth a light of loving-kindness, the aspiration, may you like myself. Be well and happy. And as this light strikes them, embraces them, suffuses them, imagine here and now they find genuine happiness and dwell within such well-being. Direct your attention to your right, to those closest to you, to your right. Practice in the same way with every out breath. Embrace them in the light, engulfed in the light from your heart. The awareness behind you to those who are nearest. Practice in the same way. Direct the light of your awareness to your left, to those who are nearest. This light flowed in all directions, 360 degrees all the way around, and above and below, a sphere of loving-kindness, a light of loving-kindness. Rather than the world pressing in upon us and demanding our attention, offer your attention, voluntarily. For what we attend to becomes real for us. And to all of those around you, for those of us here, everyone in the room, each individual, each one, the center of his or her own world, each of us fundamentally alike, fill the room with the light, fill the room with your aspiration that each one here may be well and happy. And wherever you are listening from afar, the same. Fill your immediate proximity with this light of love and kindness. Rather than having your attention taken from you, offer your attention, your greatest gift. And embrace those around you in a field of caring, a field of benevolence, of kindness. And imagine each one finding His or her own happiness. Finding the joy that is their innermost desire. Realizing their full potential. Now expand with every out-breath at your own pace. Expand this field, this sphere of light, of loving-kindness, of purification, out in all directions. All the directions round about, above and below. With every outbreath, expand the field. And expand the field of caring for every sentient being of all kinds, the seen and the unseen, whoever may be here. Let your heart expand, the field of caring expand in all directions. Illuminated by an inexhaustible source, so there's no possibility of becoming drained or exhausted. Not from this source. out over the continent, out over the sea, in all directions. The creatures, for the creatures above the land, on the land, beneath the land and in the sea, wish each one well. Embrace the entire glowing orb of light that we call our home, our planet, our Earth. Embrace it all in the light of your loving kindness. And your awareness has no limits of its own. They're only fabricated by the conceptual mind. So now melt away all limitations, and let your awareness expand outwards throughout the the solar system, wherever there may be sentient beings, visible or invisible. May each one be well and happy beyond our solar system, the one we share, expand outwards to our galaxy, the one we share, and wherever their sentient beings, may they be well and happy. With no barriers, no limitations. out to the limits of space, wherever there are sentient beings throughout the hundred billion galaxies. May each one, without exception, be well and happy. Fill the limited expanse, the limitless expanse of your awareness with this light of loving-kindness. No boundaries. all appearances, all objects and aspirations. Let them all dissolve back into emptiness and let your awareness rest in its own nature, the invisible light, the transparent luminosity of your own awareness. Rest there for a little while. Well, that's all. There's a principle, in... you have no idea what I'm about to say. Just (laughs) really kind of, it really strikes me. (laughs) You don't know where I'm going. (laughs) Not that you should. Not that it's even meaningful. But here it is. There's a principle that stood up extremely well in modern physics, and that is that neither matter nor energy nor even information information i've been looking checking up on that it's a very elusive topic in modern physics very very elusive but the principle that is withstood withstood the most intense analysis thus far is that in the entire universe nothing not matter or energy or even information can travel faster than speed of light faster than speed of light it's kind of like invariable in all relative frameworks whether you're tra- traveling fast or traveling slow from your perspective, nothing can ever travel faster than the speed of light. Even if you're traveling in the speed of light, and you shoot something in the, in, in the direction that you've come from, it's still traveling at the speed of light, not twice. That's non-relativistic physics in terms of not relative to the mind, because this is envisioning a universe in which the mind doesn't exist, which is a fictitious universe, because the only universe we know is one in which the mind does exist. It's such a joke. This is a universe in which consciousness plays no role, and this, even, even to be found, cannot be measured and can't even be defined. It's a novel with no basis in reality, because there is no such universe. And that should be manifestly obvious. What could be more obvious then? Everything we know about the universe is by way of our minds and consciousness. And then to envision the universe as if we're not in it? Like, who do you think you are? God? That you're standing outside and looking at this creation that you created with no consciousness in it? And why would you do that? was such a bizarre notion. So, I think we really must be moving into another phase of physics, ontologically relativistic physics, where we just face the music. Come on! The mind does exist. Consciousness has a role. But as long as we disempower it, as we have thus far, especially over the last hundred years, I mean radically disempower, to the point of extinction, then we will not know the role of the mind in nature. Except for the tiniest fraction, empower the mind. You might start with shamatha. You might start with shamatha. Just in that first yoga, that single point of yoga, just achieve that. With some insight into emptiness, some glimmering, of your own Buddha nature, with just that first out of four yogas, then you you out of that arises spontaneously an array of modes of extrasensory perception, munshi, and paranormal abilities, zuntu. And this is known to, <laughs> kind of like all the contemplative traditions that have developed samadhi, Hinduism, Taoism, Buddhism. They all knew about it, and we're in this ethnocentric cocoon. I was just listening to uh, <laughs> this, these incredible teachings of and Machin. and unlike me, he's so gentle. He gave a criticism of science. Morgan, you can love this. He gave a criticism of science. He said, you know, the scientists think their vision of reality. Is the only one." (laughs) That was his criticism. (laughs) That was it. That was like, psah! I've just demolished you. You are now toast, your cinders, your ashes. I've annihilated your position. He did it with... (laughs) That's all it took. I go ranting and raving, write one book after another and dog shit and bullshit and this and that. And he just does it with a grin. I think I like his way better, (laughs) but I'm not sure how many people get the message. So maybe I'll write another book. (laughs) Hey, enjoy your day, see you later.